Hello, Love Chapel Hill. You can grab a seat. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So great to see your beautiful faces. I missed you. And uh, great to see you in this beautiful space here. This is amazing. I was joking with some people that we got we get to go to church in the Shire this morning. I'm that I'm that nerdy. I love it. Uh, I wanna I wanna start today. Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Ryan, for for leading us this morning. Let's thank Ryan for leading us in worship. That was beautiful, beautiful. Uh, and I, I want to uh, start today um, by thanking you as well for giving me this time that uh, our family was allowed to have away for three months. So if you're here for the, the first time this morning, uh, it, it's, it's good to see you and good to meet you. Uh, and I am one of the pastors. My name's Matt. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Love Chapel Hill. I'm the teaching pastor. So that means I do a lot of the, the preaching on Sundays. Um, and the church has been so incredible to give our family a time of respite, uh, this interval of rest, intentional rest for our family. And I just want to say thank you so much for that. Um, if you're new today, that's the kind of church you just stumbled into. And uh, the kind of church that loves each other so well like that and cares so deeply about each other uh, that they would do something like that. I've been thinking about uh, Dean Smith a little bit uh, during my respite. And uh, Dean Smith is um, one of the legendary coaches of Carolina basketball. So we're picking up right where we left off, y'all. We got a Lord of the Rings reference. We got a UNC basketball. I'm back, all right? Um, come on. And uh, so Dean Smith is, is this legendary figure here in this community and in college basketball as a whole. Uh, an innovator in so many different ways, uh, an innovator here in our community uh, on the fronts of, of racial justice, uh, was a part of um, supporting our, our first black mayor here in the town of Chapel Hill and in, an instrumental and influential in his election here in this community. Uh, he was a part of, of uh, challenging segregation uh, here in this community, in restaurants and in neighborhoods and in different ways. Uh, and even as in his role as a basketball coach, um, he, he broke open that barrier um, by signing the, the first African-American student athlete to a basketball scholarship, full basketball scholarship in any major conference school in the South. He was an innovator in so many ways, and we still feel that here in this community. He was also an innovator uh, on the court as well, not just off the court. And so today in college basketball, you can still see his fingerprints in so many different ways. Uh, one of those is through the point, okay? Uh, when you see somebody score a basket and they turn and they point to the person who passed the ball to them, that's a Dean Smith innovation. All right, and that was intentional. He wanted to build this culture of team and this culture of family uh, and celebrating each other. And so normally the glory and all of the focus is on the person who just scored, right? But he, he changed that around and he said, when you score, turn and point to the person who passed you the ball, who made that possible and highlight that sense of team. 
And uh, another one of those innovations uh, is the raised fist, okay? And so when you're out on the court, he had this rule that if you're out there and you're feeling tired, you're feeling physically tired, when you're physically tired, you're gonna become mentally tired. When you're mentally tired, you can become physically tired. So if you're feeling either of those when you're on the court, simply raise your hand and send a signal to the bench and say, I need a breather, I need a break. And his rule was to create this sense of culture around that, of normalizing that need for rest. And when a person did that, his rule was, you get to come out of the game and you get to pick when you're ready to go back in. And he said, but here's the deal though, if you don't do that, then I get to pick when you come out and when you go back in, right? So he created this culture that honored each other in this team and family kind of environment and created this culture that normalized asking for help and asking for rest. And so today I want to celebrate that in you as a church community uh, for the way that you have embodied that, for the way that you've made that possible for me. You gave me the opportunity to raise my hand and say, I need a break. And you open up the space for that. And I'm so, so grateful. And uh, I'm feeling that today, being back, and just that sense of rest and restoration in being back. So thank you for being that kind of church. Uh, if you were one of the preachers who stepped in and stepped up this summer while I was gone, uh, would you stand up for a moment? Let's thank them. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for the way that you used your gifts, your intelligence, your depth, your heart to lead this community and to pour into this community and to shepherd this community. I'm so grateful for the way that you led. And I was listening all along and all of you preached yourselves into a job. So you're going to do that again. Okay. All right. Uh, we're going to go ahead and dive into the passage today. Thank you, Brooke, for reading that passage from John chapter 1. John is probably my favorite of the Gospels if you're allowed to pick things like that. And uh, this, this takes place right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Okay, so this passage begins uh, with these three words, the next day, the next day. And that gives us that indication of, okay, this is the continuation of a story. We're dropping into a story that has already been rolling along. We need to pull back a little bit and understand where we are in that. And as we pull back, we recognize that we're here at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. His cousin and wild wilderness prophet, John the Baptist. Okay, maybe you have heard of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist was preparing the way for the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And so he is preaching the good news to, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, and he's doing that in a way that's challenging so many of the structures of his day. Uh, the way that he communicated that message got him in trouble with the religious establishment and the political establishment at the same time. And we see that he's not only just paving the way for Jesus in doing that, he's also foreshadowing the kind of ministry that Jesus is going to have because Jesus is going to be finding himself in the crosshairs of those same establishments and power structures 
as well, challenging the political and religious establishment of his time. So John the Baptist is preparing the way for the arrival of Jesus. One day it says Jesus walks by and John had these followers that had gathered around him who had become his disciples. They wanted to become like John. They wanted to go where John went. They wanted to do what John did and learn how to do that. So they were following John. And when the time came and John had this sense that the moment is now, the moment is now. He pointed to Jesus and he said, there he is. That's the one we've been looking for. The one who is bringing salvation to the world. And when he did that, he sent his disciples away from himself. There was no need for them to be gathered around John anymore. His whole purpose was to point to Jesus. And he said, the time has come. You go follow him now. Leave me and go with him. And it tells us that two of his disciples did that. They went after Jesus and they were following after Jesus. And they were kind of following at a bit of a distance. So it tells us in verse uh, 38 that Jesus turns around, sees them following, and he asks this question. What do you want? What do you want? So that's in verse 38 of chapter 1. As we walk through this today, there are four uh, phrases that I'm going to point out that we're going to focus on. And that's the first one that we're going to look at today. So if you're following in a, in a Bible that's, you know, paper and physical Bible, then you could underline that. You could circle those words. What do you want? If you're following on your phone, then you might want to highlight those words. Okay. What do you want? Now on the surface... That is a pretty simple question, right? It's a pretty obvious question that Jesus might ask when he notices that two random people are walking behind him now. What do you want? Okay. But we know with Jesus, there is always more depth than that. Okay. Two things help us to lean into this question and realize that there's something more going on with this question. Number one, we know how intentional of a writer John is, who is the author of this gospel. We know how intentional and how brilliant he is in writing this story. And we recognize that these words that Jesus speaks, what do you want? These are the first words that we find in the mouth of Jesus in this gospel. So we pause and we recognize the importance of that. And we understand, all right, there's some weight to this. The second reason we know this is important is because of who Jesus is, because of the teaching style of Jesus. Jesus uh, is not a pastor, all right? Jesus is not a professor. Jesus is not a strategist or a CEO or any other type of leader that you might have in your mind of who Jesus might be. Jesus was a first century Jewish rabbi. That's who he was, and that's the way that he taught in so many ways. And one of the key teaching techniques for first century Jewish rabbis was to ask questions. All right. Of course, they shared their knowledge and they shared their information. But one of the ways that they engaged their students in that was to ask core questions and to ask key questions that would open up the conversation, that would open up the discovery process and journey that they would share together. That's how the rabbis taught often. And Jesus is a master teacher. 
He is the master of this. All right, he is brilliant. He is a genius. And throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus asks over 300 questions in his teaching of his disciples and in his teaching of the crowd. Jesus loves questions. So anytime you see Jesus asking a question, look deeper, see, is there something happening more here? Is there something more under the surface? Is this an invitation to move deeper into this? Jesus asked loaded questions. He asked layered questions. And he was a genius at the well-placed question. Let me challenge you with something today. A faith that has no room for questions has little room for Jesus. A faith that has no room for questions has little room for Jesus. Some of you are wrestling with questions today that seem like they are threatening to your faith. You are wrestling with questions that feel like they are threatening to your faith. Let me in, let you in a little secret. They might be threatening to your faith. Amen. As you have known it, as you have experienced it, as you have walked in it so far. Let me let you in on a better secret. They are never threatening to Jesus. Your questions might be threatening to your faith. They are never threatening to Jesus. This is one of his preferred forms of communication and conversation. So if you've got questions, he's ready. That's his language. Bring them to him and engage in that process with him. One of the things that I've found in my life that can be quite frustrating, actually, is that in prayer, I've often found that Jesus seems to not just give answers, when I'm wanting answers, I've found that, that I've rarely felt like he's given me an answer. Oftentimes, I felt like he's given me a question. A question that's drawn me in to that discovery process and moved me into a deeper exploration of that along with him. He doesn't just give you answers all the time. A lot of times his best answers are questions. So when you're sensing that, lean into it. A well-placed, well-timed, well-worded question can change the trajectory of your life and can open up so much more possibility. Anybody ever been, you don't have to raise your hand on this. I'll raise my hand on this, all right? Anybody ever been in a therapy session where you're sitting across from your counselor and you're just spilling it all out and you know like what all the problems are, right? So you're just... Boom, 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 sharing all of it. And the therapist is just sitting there, just, just waiting, just patient. And their response is to ask you a question. That when they finish that question, your answer is, well, dang. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. Now I've got to rethink my whole life. I've had that happen a few times in that sense of like, I never thought of it that way. But the well-placed question reorients the whole picture. And I might have just spent 20 minutes pouring it all out. That's wasting a lot of money, y'all. Just let them ask the questions, all right? <laughs> and the thing that I walk away from is a, just a short question. 
that I'm left to work through and to ponder. Same, same with Jesus. He's brilliant. He's the genius at this. Lean into it. Let me ask you this. How would you answer that question that Jesus asked? What do you want? What do you want? Now, if you're getting a little nervous right now and you're like, I think I might have just stumbled into one of those prosperity gospel churches where, you know, they tell you Jesus is just going to give you everything you want. We ain't that, all right? But we are one of those weird churches that believes that Jesus cares enough to press that deeply into your life to ask you that question and to walk along with you on that journey of discovering not just the question and not just how you might start to answer that question with the list of the things that you want, but as he presses even deeper and you start to understand that underneath those wants are more layers of longing and that underneath those layers of longing are some core root motivations that need to be examined in our lives. Jesus is willing to walk that whole journey with us. So let me ask you that question. What do you want? Really? What do you want? And what's underneath your first answer and your second answer and your third? Let Jesus challenge you with that question. You may want to hang on to that through the week and just let that keep coming back and work through that and see where Jesus takes you with that. The disciples who are following Jesus answer this question. When Jesus says, what do you want? They say, where are you staying? In other words, can we come with you? We want to be your followers. They say, where are you staying? And Jesus answers, come and see. Come and see. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. As the story skips forward and we get into the passage that Brooke read for us uh, in verse 43, it says that Jesus is now, once he's started to gain some followers, Jesus is about to leave where he is. He's about to head to Galilee, it says. Before he does that, it says, finding Philip. Finding Philip. So if you're underlining, circling, that's the next point here. Number two, finding Philip. Highlight it in your phone. It says finding Philip. And I love this. There's something that has always jumped out at me about those words. And not just because I like kind of the alliteration, the way it sounds together, right? But there's something about that. Finding Philip. And the way that we so often talk about how we find faith or how we have found Jesus in our lives are changed. Philip does not find Jesus. Jesus finds Philip. And for those of you who are walking in a relationship with Jesus today, you did not find Jesus. Jesus found you. Jesus came to you because Jesus always initiates. God always initiates. The Holy Spirit always initiates. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. The grace of God is at work in our lives. And Jesus is constantly seeking and searching and finding. 
The grace of God has been at work in your life before you even had one. His grace is already at work all around us in countless ways that we can't even recognize until we look back and read the story backwards. His grace is already at work all around you. His grace goes before us, opening up ways, opening up thoughts, opening up possibilities, awakening our hearts and souls and minds to our need for him, to our longing for him, giving words to things that we can't even get our hearts and minds around. He is always initiating, always moving, opening up a hunger, opening up an ache that we carry and we wonder what is this and where is this coming from? Maybe that's the grace of God doing its work in your life already. Opening up curiosity, even skepticism. We're going to talk about a little bit that a little bit more in a minute too. Even doubt that he's using to opening up, that his grace is using to open up your heart and mind and soul. Maybe even, and this is a hard one, but maybe even your anger towards God. Some of you may be carrying a weight of anger towards God. His grace is strong enough to work even in that and to bring even that around to a point of healing in the depths of your heart, mind, and soul. He is able to do that. He's always seeking. He's always searching. He's always inviting, finding Philip. Philip did not find Jesus, and you did not find Jesus. Jesus found you. And he's still seeking, and he's still searching. As we so often say, there is no such thing as a person who is far from God. There's no such thing as a person who is far from God because Jesus is seeking and searching after everyone. And in his searching and his seeking, he is finding us. When Jesus finds Philip, he gives him this invitation, very simple. He just says, follow me. Follow me. I love this because we see this over and over again, that this is the invitation that Jesus gives to his disciples. This is the invitation into the kingdom of God, into relationship with Jesus, is an invitation to become a follower of Jesus, to become a disciple of Jesus, to go with him, to be with him, to become like him. A disciple of a rabbi in the first century, that was the process. You go with your rabbi. You learn to do what your rabbi is doing. And you become like your rabbi because of that amount of time that you are spending and soaking in. And that's the invitation. Come into this invitation of discipleship. Follow me. Is Christianity about believing in Jesus? Yes. And... Yes, and Jesus calls you into belief, but he also invites you into discipleship. Believe in him and then follow him. Go with him, live with him, be shaped by him, become 
like him. I love the, the fact that when, when he does that, when he calls him and Philip's response is to follow Jesus, the first thing that Philip does is then he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. Right? As Brooke read for us, it says that, that he then goes and finds Nathaniel and he says, we have found the one that we've been looking for. No, you didn't, Philip. He found you. We just talked about that. Pay attention, Philip. All right. You did not find him. He found you. He says, but we found the one that we have been waiting for. The one that Moses told us about throughout the Torah, throughout the law. The one that the prophets told us about throughout God speaking to the people through the history of Israel. We found the culmination of it all. We found him. We found the Messiah. When he becomes a follower of Jesus, he then goes and finds Nathaniel. And says, come with me too. I love the fact that in this short story, we find the full, the full scope of the DNA of the church. Right here in this small story. The DNA of the church throughout history. Anywhere you find the church alive in the world. In any culture. Throughout time. Three things are always going to be present. Discipleship. Mission. And community. Any other thing that you think the church should be doing, it will fall into one of those three elements. That's the DNA of the church. I challenge you on that. If you can think of one that doesn't fall in there, let me know, okay? The sacraments that falls within that. Teaching the word that falls within that. Justice and mercy that falls within that. Building community together and caring for each other that falls within that. And right here in this moment, we see all three alive. There's discipleship where Philip becomes a follower of Jesus. There's mission where Philip then goes and tells Nathaniel and gets him to come along as well. And there's community. There's this sense of relationship between Philip and Nathaniel. This is a shared journey that they are embarking on together. And the church has always been a shared journey from the very beginning. We see discipleship, mission, and community. It's got to move beyond belief and move into discipleship. Every believer must become a disciple. And every disciple must become a missionary. That's the DNA of the church. That's the reality of the church. By missionary, I don't mean you have to go to another country. All right. Live on mission right here where you are, if that's where he's rooted you and planted you and called you to. But every believer must become a disciple. Every disciple must become a missionary. And we see it right here, this invitation into discipleship. Uh, our friend Emily is getting baptized today. Stand up for a second, Emily, if, you, if that's okay. Yeah. I love it. Emily's been a part of our church family for a couple of years. And uh, she wants to seal that declaration, that public declaration that she's a follower of Jesus through this act of baptism. And it's this statement that says, I will follow him. I will be buried with his death. I will be raised up in his life. And I am a follower of Jesus. And we cannot wait to celebrate that. We invite you to come be a part of that. It's at Morgan Creek. Uh, this beautiful little creek that runs through Chapel Hill. And by beautiful, maybe that's just my sentiment. All right. Beautiful, muddy, but it's great. All right. Come and join us and be a part of celebrating that today. 
And if you want to be a part of that, you want to express your discipleship through baptism, then come talk to us and let us know. The third thing is this, all right? Number three, the next statement, come and see. Come and see. When, the, when Philip goes to Nathaniel and tells him, we found the one we've been waiting for, Nathaniel does not believe, all right? Nathaniel can't believe it. And he says, what, what do you mean? He says, His, this, this guy is Jesus of Nazareth. We found him. And I love Nathaniel's response. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? So he can't believe he's the Messiah because he's from Nazareth, right? And then Philip's response is beautiful. He just says, come and see. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. It echoes the way that, that Jesus was talking earlier in the chapter, right? When the first disciples come, they say, we want to go where you're staying. Where are you staying? And he says, come and see. And now we hear the same words in Philip's mouth as well. Come and see. This, this invitation into experiencing Jesus. Nathaniel at first can't believe because of Nazareth, that's not going to make sense to us because we're not from there and we don't get all of the reputation that is around that. But there's this sense of reputation and this sense of a shadow that is hanging over the place of Nazareth that Nathaniel, he's had enough experience with Nazareth that he cannot believe that anything good can come out of Nazareth. So he doesn't believe that this could possibly be Jesus. It's a natural skepticism about Jesus because of what is surrounding Jesus. Because of where he thinks Jesus is coming out of. We have the same problem here. We have the same problem here. Not Chapel Hill. We love Chapel Hill, all right? But Christianity. You want me to buy into Christianity? Can anything good come out of Christianity? Have you not read the history books? Are you not on Facebook right now? Can anything good come out of Christianity? Can anything intelligent come out of Christianity? Can anything authentic come out of Christianity? Can anything honest come out of Christianity? Can anything humble come out of Christianity? Can anything helpful or hopeful or loving come out of Christianity? Are you serious? You want me to buy into that? What I love about Philip's response is he doesn't try to argue. He just invites. He doesn't try to explain. He just says, come and explore. Come and experience. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. It wasn't about Nazareth. It was about the person of Jesus. And it's not about Christianity. It's about Christ. All of those things that you think about Christianity, all of those things that people around you think, all the objections that they have to Christianity, do they have those objections to Jesus? 
Do they think those things about Jesus? No. And that's part of the reason they don't like Christianity and that they don't trust Christianity is because oftentimes it looks so different from what they know about Jesus, what they've heard about Jesus. If that's you today and you're wrestling with that skepticism, then let me just say, I understand that. And there is an earned reputation that you're looking at. There is an earned shadow that you're looking at. But let me tell you deeper. It's never been about Christianity. It's always been about Christ. It's not about them. It's not about what they did. It's not about what that church did. It's not about what this church did. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. It's not about them. It's about him and you and what you're going to do with that. Come and see. Come and see. We're not going to be an apologist for other Christians or for ourselves as Christians. We know that screwed up people are drawn to Jesus. We're, we're them. We're them. But we want to point you to Jesus. Keep pressing into him. Explore him. Experience him. The most honest response to the skepticism that we feel is not to dismiss something and to write it off. The most honest response to the, response to the skepticism that we feel is to explore. So I invite you to explore Jesus and to press in to Jesus. Come and see, experience and explore, not just what you've heard about him, but him. Not just an invitation to come to church. That's not what that is about. That's not what come and see is about. (laughs) It's about experiencing Jesus. It's about experiencing Jesus. And he's inviting you into that. He's inviting you into that. If you're a skeptic, then let me tell you, Jesus loves skeptics. And skeptics often love Jesus. We see that throughout the Gospels. Trace back the story of the 12 apostles who come around Jesus, become his disciples, his inner core of disciples. And you will find that many of them started out as skeptics and many of them continued to be skeptics as they were followers of Jesus, even on the other side of his crucifixion until they experienced the fullness of his resurrection and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus loves skeptics and he welcomes skeptics. The honest response to skepticism is exploration. Come and see. Last thing, number four, I saw you. I saw you. In verse 50, uh, if you're writing, if you're underlining, circling, then that's the next piece. I saw you. In verse 50, it says that, that Philip has, has brought Nathaniel to meet Jesus. Jesus speaks right into the heart of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's response is belief. And Nathaniel says, How do you know me? He spoke so deeply to the heart of Nathaniel, probably to the core of that, What do you want? Who do you want to be? What do you deeply want? Jesus looked to the core of him and said, Now there's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Here's the real thing right in front of me. And it spoke so deeply to the core of Nathaniel. He says, How do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. I saw you. I saw you. 
he has this moment where his eyes open up and he realizes the reality of who Jesus is. He says, you're the son of God, speaking of the divinity of Jesus. You're the king of Israel, speaking of the way that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole scripture story. All of the hopes of Israel, the fulfillment of all the promises and the covenants. And Jesus is the peak of all of that. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, you're going to see even more than that. Seeing is an important theme all the way through the gospel and through this. He says, you're going to see even more than that, he says. Jesus gives himself the name of the Son of Man, which is another important title connected to the Messiahship and the kingship of Israel and the kingdom of God. But what is it that brings this moment of Nathaniel seeing and being able to see and the promise that he's going to see even more the thing that opens that up is Jesus looking at him and saying, I saw you. I saw you. You came to see me, but before you came to see me and to experience me, I saw you. For some of us today, that is the most hopeful thing you could possibly hear. The sense that God sees you. The sense that Jesus sees you. He says, Philip, uh, Nathaniel, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. And he's saying to you today, I saw you while you were under the sweet gum tree in the arboretum. Are y'all impressed that I knew this was a sweet gum tree? I read the sign right before. All right. <laughs> I had to do my research. But Jesus is seeing you today. Yes, the invitation is to come and see. But the really good news that starts it all is the reality that He sees you. He sees you in your skepticism and He says, come on, bring that. Bring that with you. He sees you in your doubt and He says, bring that with you. He sees you in your questions. He says, that's my language. Come on, bring that with you. He sees you in your depression. And he says, I know what that is like. I've been to the depths and I know what that is like. I see you. He sees your anxiety and he says, I see you. I've been in a moment when I was so broken that my tears turned to blood. I know I've been there. I see you. I see you. In that moment of not knowing what is next and you're begging him to tell you and to let you know and to please show you what you're supposed to do next. He says, I see you and I've seen what is ahead and you can trust me. In that prayer that you've been begging him to answer, but you feel like the only answer you're getting is silence. He's breaking that silence enough to say, I see you. I have not given up on you. I have not left you. I see you. Wherever you are today, that's the reality and that's the hope. The God who sees you. The first time that God is given a name anywhere throughout scriptures uh, by a human being happens in the book of Genesis in chapter 16 and it's Hagar. And Hagar is an outcast in every possible way because of her gender, 
because of her place of origin, because of her role within that society, because of her influence and her place, lack of, she was an outcast in every possible way. And she's the first human being to give a name to God in all of Scripture. And what's the name that she gives to him? The God who sees me. And the same God who met Hagar weeping. The same God who saw Nathanael under the fig tree is still that God today. He sees you under the sweet gum. He sees you and he's for you and he loves you. Amen.